The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. If you require legal advice, you should consult a lawyer. No one connected with this podcast in any way whatsoever can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views and opinions expressed are those of the podcast or do not represent the opinions of any other person, entity, agency, organization, employer, or company. These views are always subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision-making. Now let's leap in. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Mike Novakowski, your podcast host. It is my honor and privilege that you are spending some time with me. In today's episode, we will be looking at the Supreme Court of Canada's first ruling of 2022. It is a case arising in Alberta involving the strip search of an arrestee. Recently, I heard a law professor and practicing lawyer say, and I quote, I've just come to the belief that the criminal law has gotten so complicated that it's hard not to realize that lawyers need help on complex matters, end quote. And as we go through this case, we will see that exercising police powers can be complicated too. But unlike lawyers and judges, you as a police officer may not have a lot of time to research and reflect. This is why I believe police officers need to be proactive in their training. My hope is that you can use what you learn from this case law to charter-proof your investigations. Before we get into the case, we need to look back more than 20 years to another case called R.V. Golden. In that case, a majority of the Supreme Court of Canada determined that the police could conduct a strip search of a person incidental to their arrest, provided four criteria were satisfied. First, the arrest must be lawful. So, for example, if you are relying on Section 495 of the Criminal Code for your power of arrest, you need to ensure that you have satisfied the criteria found in that provision. Second, the search must be conducted as an incident to the arrest. You must have a valid law enforcement objective in your mind when conducting the strip search such as searching for evidence related to the reason for the arrest or searching for weapons for the purpose of ensuring the safety of the police, the arrestee, or other persons. Third, you must have, I quote, reasonable and probable grounds for concluding that a strip search is necessary in the particular circumstances of the arrest, end quote. Strip searches cannot be carried out as a matter of routine policy, and you must establish reasonable grounds justifying the strip search beyond the reasonable grounds justifying the arrest. And finally, the search must be conducted in a reasonable manner. This includes the requirement that the strip search be conducted at the police station unless there are exigencies why it should be done in the field. In defining what constitutes a strip search, the Supreme Court adopted the following description, and I quote, The removal or rearrangement of some or all of the clothing of a person so as to permit a visual inspection of a person's private areas, namely genitals, buttocks, breasts in the case of a female, or undergarments, end quote. Now to the 2022 case, where the Supreme Court of Canada once again had to decide whether a strip search of an arrestee was justified in the circumstances of the arrest. In R.V. Alley, cited at 2022 SCC1, the police received information from two confidential informers that two men were trafficking in large quantities of cocaine from a van and an apartment complex. The police conducted surveillance and corroborated the tips, making observations consistent with drug trafficking. A search warrant was obtained for the apartment. When the search warrant was executed, the police found several people, including Mr. Alley, inside the apartment. Mr. Alley did not immediately comply with the arresting officer's commands. 
He was wearing baggy jeans pulled partly down, showing athletic basketball shorts worn underneath, and he was seen by the arresting officer reaching towards his nether region, or back of his pants, during the arrest. Mr. Ellie's pants were removed and its pockets were searched. A small amount of marijuana, a ringing cell phone, and cash were found. The pockets of his athletic shorts, which were not removed from his person, were also searched and more money was located. A total of $6,500 in cash was seized from him. No cocaine was located, but a small scale was found on a table in front of him, and Mr. Ellie was transported to the police station. The arresting officer told the lead investigator about Mr. Ellie reaching around the back of his pants. The lead investigator then phoned the supervisor at the jail, explained the circumstances of the arrest, and requested Mr. Ellie be strip-searched. A strip-search was conducted in a private restroom. Three small baggies containing cocaine, weighing 65 grams in total, were found in Mr. Ellie's butt-crack area. After the strip search, Mr. Ellie was allowed to speak to counsel. He was subsequently charged with several offenses, including possessing cocaine for the purpose of trafficking. At Mr. Ellie's trial in Alberta Provincial Court, the lead investigator testified he did not himself personally observe Mr. Ellie reaching towards his buttocks. Rather, he had been told by the arresting officer about Mr. Ellie making adjustments to this area. The lead investigator said Mr. Ellie had very little time to hide anything when the police first entered the residence, but based on Mr. Ellie's actions, it was believed he had concealed or was always concealing drugs on his person. This officer was concerned with Mr. Ellie's safety, stating that cocaine could be ingested anally through the body which could lead to an overdose or death. The trial judge recognized that the police must have both a subjective and an objective basis for a strip search. He found there were both subjective and objective reasons for the police to believe that they could find evidence by way of a strip search given the totality of the circumstances, including the facts outlined in the search warrant as well as Mr. Ellie's actions upon arrest. Mr. Ellie was convicted of possessing cocaine for the purpose of trafficking. Mr. Ellie appealed his conviction to the Alberta Court of Appeal where three judges heard the case. Although Mr. Ellie conceded that there were reasonable and probable grounds for his arrest, meaning his arrest was lawful, he argued there were insufficient reasonable and probable grounds to justify the strip search. In his view, the trial judge used inadmissible hearsay in deciding whether the police objectively had reasonable grounds for the strip search. This hearsay was alleged to be the information received by the lead investigator about Mr. Ellie reaching toward his buttocks. Further, Mr. Ellie submitted that the wrong test was applied in justifying the strip search. He argued the trial judge applied too low of a standard. So what about the hearsay argument? Mr. Ellie suggested that the observation of him reaching towards his buttocks and relied upon by the lead investigator was hearsay because the arresting officer never testified in court about this observation. Therefore, in his view, it could not be used to justify the strip search. A majority of the Court of Appeal, however, found the information about this observation was not hearsay because it was not being admitted as evidence to prove the truth of its contents. That is an important point of this case. The purpose for which an out-of-court statement is tendered matters in defining what constitutes hearsay, because it is only when the evidence is tendered to prove the truth of its contents that the need to test its reliability arises. Although not cited in this case, consider the following example once used by the Supreme Court of Canada in a different case. I think it's worthy of pointing out to help understand the hearsay argument. Here's how it goes. At an accused trial on a charge for impaired driving, a police officer testifies that they stopped the accused car because they received information from an unidentified caller that the car was driven by a person who had just left a local tavern in a very drunk condition. If the statement about the inebriated condition of the driver is introduced for the sole purpose of establishing the police officer's grounds for stopping the vehicle, it does not matter whether the unidentified caller's statement was accurate, exaggerated, or even false. 
Even if the statement is totally unfounded, that fact does not take away from the officer's explanation of their actions. If, on the other hand, the statement is tendered as proof that the accused was in fact impaired, the trier of fact's inability to test the reliability of the statement raises real concerns. Hence, only in the second circumstance is the evidence about the caller's statement defined as hearsay and subject to the general exclusionary rule. Now back to the case. The information relayed from one officer to the other was merely being used as part of the grounds for conducting the strip search. It simply helped explain why the police found it necessary to strip search Mr. Alley. Police officers are entitled to rely on information provided by another officer and the trial judge was permitted to consider the information when deciding whether there were reasonable and probable grounds to conduct the strip search. That leads us to the second question. Was the strip search justified? As noted, a strip search can be conducted incidental to a lawful arrest for the purpose of discovering weapons in the arrestee's possession or evidence related to the reason for the arrest as long as the police can establish the necessary grounds to justify the strip search beyond the grounds necessary to justify the arrest. The majority of the Alberta Court of Appeal found that the trial judge did not make a mistake in determining that the strip search of Mr. Alley, incident to his lawful arrest, complied with the principles governing strip searches as set out by the Supreme Court in Golden. The overall context of the investigation, the execution of the search warrant, and Mr. Alley's observed movements justified the strip search. Now, this wasn't a unanimous decision. One Court of Appeal judge found that the trial judge did not turn their mind to the proper test for a strip search. This judge held that the police did not have reasonable and probable grounds for concluding that the strip search was necessary in the particular circumstances of this arrest. This appeal judge would have acquitted Mr. Alley. It is not unusual for judges, even those who sit on appeal courts, to disagree on the application of the law to a particular set of facts. Once again, this lack of agreement actually demonstrates how difficult a police officer's job can be to get it right all the time. But this did not end the matter. Mr. Alley again appealed his conviction, this time to the Supreme Court of Canada. Five judges heard the appeal. In a short oral ruling on the matter, Justice Moldaver, speaking for himself and three of his colleagues, agreed that the strip search in this case, as an incident to Mr. Alley's arrest, was lawful. He stated, and I quote, Where a strip search is conducted as an incident to a person's lawful arrest, there must be reasonable and probable grounds justifying the strip search, in addition to reasonable and probable grounds justifying the arrest. These grounds are met for the strip search, where there is some evidence suggesting the possibility of concealment of weapons or other evidence related to the reason for the arrest, end quote. In this case, the threshold had been satisfied. The police provided some evidence suggesting the possibility that Mr. Alley had concealed drugs, particularly cocaine, in and around the area of his buttocks. Viewed in their totality, the following factors provided these grounds. Number one. The police had confidential source information that their target was in possession of a large quantity of cocaine and that he kept most of his drugs on his person. Number two, Mr. Alley was found next to a table with drugs other than cocaine and with items consistent with drug trafficking, including a scale, money, and a ringing cell phone. Number three, Mr. Alley's pants were partially down as he was being arrested. And number four, an officer reported seeing Mr. Alley reaching towards the back of his pants. Moreover, the investigating officer's reliance on the information that Mr. Alley was reaching towards the back of his pants was not improper. 
It was not inadmissible hearsay because it was not tendered for the truth of its contents and could reasonably be relied upon by the investigating officer as a factor in deciding whether there were reasonable and probable grounds to request the strip search. Unfortunately for Mr. Alley, his trial lawyer actually made a tactical choice not to cross-examine either officer about this information, which remained uncontradicted. Not surprisingly, a lone dissenting justice of the Supreme Court took a different approach. In her view, she concluded that the Crown had failed to discharge its burden of establishing the required threshold to justify the warrantless strip search. She found that Mr. Alley's strip search was unreasonable under Section 8 of the Charter, but would have admitted the evidence anyways because excluding it would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. Doing the math, all five Supreme Court justices dismissed Mr. Alley's appeal from conviction, but for different reasons. Four judges, because the police did not breach Mr. Alley's charter rights, and one judge, because Section 24.2 saved the evidence from exclusion despite a charter breach. So what can we take away from this case? Well, I think we can learn the following legal lessons. Number one, if you decide to conduct a strip search, you must not only have reasonable grounds to justify your arrest, you must also have reasonable grounds to justify a strip search. This is nothing new but merely a reminder of what the Supreme Court said more than 20 years ago in Golden. Number two, this reasonable and probable grounds threshold for a strip search can be met, I quote, where there is some evidence suggesting the possibility of concealment of weapons or other evidence related to the reason for the arrest, end quote. Note the deliberate choice of the word possibility rather than probability. Recall from other Supreme Court jurisprudence such as R.V. Chahill, a dog sniff case. While reasonable grounds to suspect and reasonable and probable grounds to believe are similar in that they both must be grounded in objective facts, Reasonable suspicion is a lower standard as it engages reasonable possibilities rather than reasonable probabilities. So you don't require reasonable and probable grounds to believe you will actually find weapons or evidence related to your arrest before conducting a strip search. Instead, you must have some evidence of the possibility of concealment. Obviously, if you have satisfied the higher standard, you will have met the lower one. Some police agencies use the higher standard in their policy on strip searches. You may want to check your policy to see what it says. Perhaps a change is in order if the standard is too high. Interestingly, Ontario's Office of the Independent Review Director in March 2019 released a report entitled Breaking the Golden Rule, a review of police strip searches in Ontario. At page 19, the report stated, and I quote, Officers should not conduct a strip search on safety grounds unless they are able to articulate why they have reasonable and probable grounds to believe that the arrested person is concealing a weapon, end quote. In my view, this is not the standard used by the Supreme Court in Alley. The OIRD standard requires grounds the person is concealing a weapon, which is more in line with a reasonable probability as opposed to a reasonable possibility of concealment. Number three, a court will view the evidence known to the police in its totality when assessing whether the reasonable and probable ground standard has been met. This evidence can include information passed on to you from another officer. Repeating what you were told and explaining why you acted is not inadmissible hearsay because you are not telling it to prove that what you were told was in fact true. Instead, you are using what you were told for the purpose of establishing your grounds for conducting a strip search. This information is merely being used to explain why you did what you did. At the end of the day, the law is clear that you cannot simply strip search someone just because you arrested them. You need something more. You need some evidence suggesting the possibility of concealment of weapons or other evidence related to the reason for your arrest. I hope this information has been helpful. You can find links to the Golden and Alley cases in the podcast notes. If you think this podcast would interest others, please share it. 
If you'd like to contact me for any training needs or if you have a question you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. That's legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart and stay safe.